Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Sometimes we take for granted that the most simplest messages in the Word of God are... Uh, maybe we just look at them and say, well, we already know that. But if we miss that truth, if we don't get that truth, then uh, we sure wasted a lot of time. And when we get to that point, when we cross over on the other side, it's a little late then try to make those adjustments. It's a little late then to say, oh, uh, I didn't get that quite right. This morning, I want to talk to you along the subject, is salvation by faith or is it by works? Because you see, I hear people discuss things and, and it's like they're like James sometimes. They're trying to emphasize the importance of works and you should. And then there are those that are like Paul emphasizing the, say, uh, the fact of salvation from the standpoint of there's nothing you can add to it. It's a free gift, and you must receive it. So these things are important, and I just happened to hear uh, just a little bit this morning before I left the house. Charles Stanley was preaching on this stuff this morning, so don't think that I grabbed Charles' stuff. I didn't. I felt I had this prepared earlier during the week. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and, and 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, Paul pretty well addresses James in here and also uh, his own belief and, and teaching. But if you were to ask Paul, Paul, do you believe that salvation is by works? He would say no. Jesus cashed in on the same in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, when Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth, you say, see there, Mike, that's doeth, that's working. Well, just don't throw in the towel yet. Listen good, because the next verse will clear that up. He that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Then Jesus says this, Many will say unto me that in that day, Lord, have we not preached or prophesied in your name? Works. Have we not cast out devils in your name? Works. And then have we not in your name done many wonderful works? Then verse 23, Jesus said, And the, uh, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, if it was works that saved us, boy, they had a plenty of them. I haven't, you know what? I've been pastoring now 30 plus years, and I got news for you. I haven't done a whole lot of cast. I've been around a lot of demon people. I've been around a lot of people who have been oppressed and depressed and, 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 and a few, few possessed by demons. And I've been around a lot of Christians who act like demons, but I've never really felt like that I've ever been a part of an exorcism. And that's what they're talking about here. You, they had been part of exercising demons. They had been part of preaching or possibly forth, not only forth telling, but foretelling the gospel. And uh, the 
in the future and doing many wonderful, mighty works. Well, I think it's obvious that if we look hard enough and just camp on the side of works, works does not save you. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and I know this is to the church, but notice what he says closely in this verse. He says, Behold, I stand at the door, and if any man hear my voice and open the door. I think it's significant that you and I understand that there is a door to salvation. And there's only one door. Now, my wife works with some folks, and and they uh, are a part of a religion that believes that you will. there's multiple ways to receive eternal life. In other words, there's all kind of ways to get to heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that there is one door, and John 14, 6, Jesus said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by who? By him, by Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He is the only door of salvation. So if you miss it, it's because you chose a different way. Or you didn't choose one at all. You see, while works, Mike, are they important? Yes, they're important. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 11, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. You see, I'm, a con- I'm convinced with all my heart, I do get troubled. I don't judge anybody because I'm not smart enough to know in this room who's saved and who isn't saved. And you're not either. I don't give a rip what you think you say or you put parentheses by, by, uh, uh, over someone. You do not have the ability to look in and do spiritual dissection. I don't care how religious you think you are or judgmental you think you are. But. While it is true, the all-seeing eye of eyes of an x-ray vision of God, when he looks into our heart, he knows who's saved. He knows who's genuine. He knows, and I promise you, saved people accept the... It's kind of hard for the, the thief on the cross that got saved at the very moment he died. He didn't have a lot of opportunity to serve, did he? No, he just ended up that day, according to Jesus... Uh, being with him in paradise. But for the, for the run-of-the-mill, everyday walk, and those who accept Jesus, listen. Jesus said it's very important that you understand that, and, and this isn't just serving uh, the Lord Jesus. This is serving your, your mates. This is serving your kids. This is serving wherever. You and I have been called to be a servant, not to sit, not to soak, and not to sour. If you're a born-again believer, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit within you, will lead you to be the greatest of all, and that is to be a servant. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace, the unmerited favor of God, you are saved by faith. Let me speak to you uh, along the definition of grace. Grace is what everybody needs but nobody deserves. And what God alone can give. No one will ever get to heaven because of their performance, because of what they've done, because of their position, because of their pedigree, because of their parents, and I could go on and on and on. 
I don't care what religion you are. I don't care how you were put in catechism. I don't care if you were baptized in the church. That does not seal you unto the day of redemption. It is a it is a encounter with Jesus Christ. You see, when it even though things such as I've mentioned to you are not are, are irrelevant when it comes to salvation. It even has nothing to do with your conduct. Conduct is important and your character is important. But the only reason anyone goes to heaven is because of the compassion of, of God and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by His grace. Grace is something given to people who do not deserve it because it can not be earned. You cannot earn grace. You better listen to that. Salvation is not by works. Do you hear that? If you, think, if you believe anything else, you believe totally against the Word of God. The average person has the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he made a day, down payment for our salvation, and we have to make the installments. That is not true. What my Jesus did on the cross was full, final, and it was complete. You and I can't earn any of that. But I've got some great, I've got great news for you. Salvation is totally, completely free. Jesus paid it all, and you and I cannot win it as a prize. You can't earn it as a wage. You can't do anything to deserve it. As a reward, but you can, and the only way we will have salvation is if we receive it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised His Son from the dead, you may be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the confession, or with the mouth confession is made uh, unto salvation. And verse 13 says, Whosoever will may come who calls upon the name of the Lord, who receives the Lord Jesus, who trusts in Jesus, and he calls with his mouth. This is not something you just run around flippantly say, I can just be saved when I want to. Oh, no. No, 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 no. This isn't easy believism. This is when Jesus intervenes and interjects in your life through the Holy Spirit and makes you aware of your need of salvation. You see, salvation is not a bargain, it's an offer. It's not a reward for those who are righteous. It's a gift for those who admit that they're guilty of sin and lostness. You will never, ever get saved until you, first of all, know that you are lost and without Jesus. You see, if you, when it comes to the grace of God, there has been no artist that can paint its beauty there's been no scientist that can discover its ingredient. There has been no language that can describe its wonder. And there's been no imagination that can conceive its greatness. No eloquence can explain it. No intelligence can totally understand it. It's the grace of God. If the Bible has said you were saved by grace through intelligence, some of you would be too dumb. 
If we were saved by grace through looks, I guarantee you some, this old boy would never make it because of ugliness. If we're saved through education, then some of you be too ignorant. If we were saved by grace through money, some of you would be too poor. But all that is necessary for you and I to be simply saved by faith is to accept by faith, receive by faith, and trust Jesus and confess with our mouth the need to have Jesus as the Holy Spirit revealed to us that we are lost to be saved and accept Him. You see, when I talk about faith, please understand I'm not talking about an intellectual acknowledgement of something in your, that's in your head. Faith is more than that. It's trusting with your heart. It's trusting with your being. It's, it's an exchange from the old nature that you receive that we'll read about in a minute from the nature you were born with, and that's the Adamic nature, the old sinful nature, and uh, having, it, having an exchange and receive the new divine nature. I like to explain it this way. A motorcycle officer was moving smoothly through the Los Angeles suburb, suburb on his way to work. As he neared the intersection, a red pickup truck sped past him without even slowing down. The officer turned on his flashing lights, radioed the station. He was in pursuit of a red truck that had blown by him. As, in, as his unit pulled up behind the truck... The officer was thinking, you know what? This fellow is probably just late for work. Well, unknown to the officer, the driver of the pickup had just robbed an all-night convenience store. On the seat beside the driver was a paper bag with money and the gun that he used. As the officer pulled up beside him, the, the man put his hand on the gun. The truck pulled to the side of the roadway and stopped. The officer got off his motorcycle and approached the driver's side of the pickup. He was relaxed. He said, good morning, sir. May I see your license? Those were the last words that he said. The driver stuck his arm out of the truck with a firearm and fired right two inches, three inches away from the center of his chest. It knocked the, the officer some seven feet away onto the ground of the truck. For a few minutes, all was quiet. Then to the horror of the gunman, the officer slowly stood to his feet. The driver couldn't believe it. He said, this guy must be Clark Kent. In shock, the policeman slowly began to brush the dirt off his uniform. After two or three seconds, the officer gained his wits, pulled out his service revolver, fired two rounds in the side of the truck. First round went through the windshield, destroyed it. Second round went through the side of the door, ripped the driver's into the driver's leg. The terrified robber screamed, don't shoot, and threw his gun in the bag of money on the ground. I give up. That officer's life had been spared because he was wearing a bulletproof vest. You see, vests were incredibly strong, even though they're only about three-eighths of an inch thick. They're made of dozens of layers of extremely tough fabric 
called, and I don't know if I pronounced this right, a Kevlar or a Kevlar. A few months later, another officer named Ray Hicks, his partner went to search out apartment, run down, ragged out apartment on a drug call. Four slugs went through the door. One going almost in the same place as the other officer one month earlier. His partner called out, I'm hit, and slowly sank to the floor. The coroner reported that this officer lived less than a minute. The bullet had ruptured an artery and the blood, to the blood flow to his brain, and he died almost instantly. Police officer Ray Hicks was 27 years old. He left his wife, three children, and a bulletproof vest in the trunk of his car, parked 30 feet from where he fell. Mike, what's the moral of that story? Well, an officer can believe in all he wants to invest, but first he must take his belief to the point of personal commitment. While that vest was just as good as the other vest, the difference is one cop wore the vest, the other did not. I want you to hear a verse in in Colossians chapter 3. It says, Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old evil nature and all its wicked deeds, and in its place you have put on or you have clothed yourselves with a brand new nature, That is continually being renewed as you learn more and more about Jesus Christ. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric or uncivilized, a slave or free. Christ is all that matters. He lives in all of us that have freely received and accepted the free gift of grace the free gift of salvation. You see, it's not enough just to believe that a man named Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago, nor even to believe that he was born of a virgin, nor even to believe he performed miracles, or even to believe that he died on the cross for you and me, nor even to believe he was raised from the dead. Saving faith is when you take your belief to a point of commitment, and you put him on like the first officer put his personal vest on of protection and of commitment. You place upon you, you say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I accept him. I confess that I I want him as my Savior and my Lord. I want him in my heart. And I'm telling you today, if you've never done that, you're lost. You hear me? You don't know Jesus And Jesus don't live on the inside. And if you're shocked by the enemy, many times we go straight down because we don't have the power of Jesus Christ within us to sustain the blow from the enemy. You see, Paul knew what he was saying, for by grace are you saved through what? For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. Now, 
There is a point of discussion that I think is significant, and that's where you find that in James 2, if you want to turn there. Because in James 2, there's three actually listed by James of three kinds of faith. Now, the one that Paul talked about, the, the saving faith is the third mention of the kind of faith that James was talking about. But I want you to look at something because you do need to understand how important works come into play when it involves salvation. Look at verse 14, James chapter 2. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith cannot save anyone. See, Faith is a key doctrine in the Christian life. According to Ephesians 2, the sinner is saved by faith. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, the believer must walk by faith. And uh, without faith, uh, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it's impossible to please God. And whatever we do apart from faith, Romans 14, 23, is sin. Now, it's important that you understand that dead faith, according to what James is sharing here, is not saving faith. It is a belief, but it's not a belief in Jesus Christ. It is a form of godliness, but it's denying the very power of Jesus who instituted, who came and set up salvation. You know, the story is told of a man named Blondin who was a great tight walker. And while performing on a cable across the Niagara Falls, he asked the audience this question. How many believe that I can walk across this tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow? Everybody said, yeah, well, I believe it. I believe. Well, he said, to which he said, as he said loudly or to the people cheering loudly, how many of you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across the cable with a man in it. Everybody, whoo, I believe, I believe that you can do it. Well, Blondin then point to one of the most enthusiastic men in the audience and said, you're that man. Now get in the wheelbarrow, and needless to say, that man went on the run. Why? A lot of people are on the run because they never stepped in. They never stepped through the door of salvation. It's not that they received him and then got blown away. It's that they never really truly accepted the commitment. They never put on the bulletproof vest. They've never really been born again. You see, I believe there is a faith with no fruit, but it comes as a result of possibly on long Jevity, long time, no root. I believe you can go over to John, and I think it's chapter 15, and you can quickly see that if you and I are born again, not only will we bear fruit, but we are tapped into a root system. And the root system is from heaven. The root system is from the husbandman. The root system is from the Father and His, his power and His saving grace and His... his uh, uh, divine flow flows through us because we are not just bearing a fruit. We're tapped in to a root that goes all the way to glory. You see, that's what Jesus came to do for you and I. 
Well, there are two apparent views concerning uh, where it comes to faith and works. There are those who put more emphasis on faith and they forget the works. And then there are others who overemphasize works while get forgetting faith. The problem arises when people fail to make the distinction between the requirement for salvation and the result of salvation. See, there's a big difference. The Bible repeatedly and plainly teaches us that salvation is by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the Bible teaches that true faith will always result in good works. It is faith with works that many of us want to emphasize. James is in, emphasizes if we have faith, it will be faith that works. You see, if Jesus is in you, he got to go somewhere. If you got the new divine nature in you and you've made an exchange for the old sinful nature, hey, that nature has got to move. That nature's got to do something. But if you're dead in Jesus and you have no desire to serve and you have no desire to work for him and you have no desire to to connect and, and to join hands with Jesus and all those who believe, then maybe something is wrong with you. You see, when it comes to James in verses 14 to 17, he's not speaking of one who has faith. He's speaking of one who claims that they have faith. He's putting the emphasis on a false claim rather than real faith. He's really saying just because a man claims to have faith doesn't mean that he is in the faith. You see, we're not Christians just because we say we are. <laughs> well, bless God, I'm a believer. I was born in the United States. After all, this is a Christian nation, right? That doesn't make you a believer. Joining up with the Holy One is the only one that I know that will make you a believer. And by the way, the coolest thought that ever came to my mind when I, when I was at my lowest ebb in life, when I feel like that I've messed up the, the most and blown it the most, is when I realized that Jesus knew me before I was born. Jesus knew me that when I, before I ever messed up. Jesus knew that I would be weak in the faith. Jesus knew that I'd be strong and grow. But Jesus knew that I would be in a human tent. Jesus knew that I would choose him. Jesus knew all of that. He knew, and, and he knew that I was of an Adamic nature, that I chose oftentimes in that nature sin. But yet he still chose to come and die on the cross for old wretched Mike. And your wretched soul as well. Isn't that neat? That he loved us and loves us that much. There are a lot who profess and never possess. And, and, and one of the illustrations that James uses in, is in found in verses 15 to 16. He says, if a fellow brother or sister is in need, comes into your fellowship... And you don't try to help them. Now, I'm not talking about somebody that is a professional beggar. I'm not talking about somebody that's so doggone lazy they won't work. 
I'm a firm believer, the Old Testament's true here, that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Now, I'll tell you why. Because if you go long enough without food, something's going to kick in and say, you know what, I need to get a job. (laughs) I need to rake some leaves. I need to clean out some gutters. I need to go to work. By the way, if you're too lazy to work, you ought to starve to death. That's the only remedy I know. We bailing them out. Our government system keeps giving them the money. That that ain't working. We're just going broke. But if they go to work and earn it by the sweat of their brow, they appreciate it more. Well, there are those, I believe, that come into the fellowship and we see them. We see them in the food program. We see them in the clinic. We see them. I see them in the office. I see the takers. I know the takers. They're always on the take. It doesn't matter how much they get. They're always taking. They always want one more. See? But there are some genuine needs around us. And, and I think this is what James is describing here. And if someone comes in that has a genuine need and we don't help them, the Bible tells us where is the love of God in us? You see, it sounded off also in 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeketh, seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You see, the refusal, I think, sometimes for us to help those truly in need is to say that the love of the Father does not live within us. Because God does help those that truly desire His help and and have and, and that are in need. Well, there's a second faith. Look in verse 18 and 19. Verse 19 says, Thou believest there is one God, you do well. The devils believe and tremble. This is a demonic faith. Now, I want to tell you something. If you're not an addict, some of you struggle, at, I think, of knowing what demons and the screaming of demons sound like. Most of us know the pull of the flesh. Most of us know when we're being tempted. But I'm going to tell you something. Demons are real. Demons are active. Demons are all around us doing their work. But demons do not believe and have trusted in Jesus. For you see, while I think it's true that all around us we see evil, all around us we see things that that require or, or that we see that the, the involvement of the evil of hell. Demons do not doubt the deity of Jesus. They know there is one God. In fact, James says they even believe and tremble. But notice this, because they believe and because they tremble, it makes them not believers in Jesus Christ. They are still doomed. They are still going to end up in hell. They are so in tuned and know about Jesus, the Bible says that they tremble, which speaks of their high degree of terror. Look, 
The hair stands up on the back of their head. When Jesus would walk in the presence of demons, all of a sudden they would begin, what do you, what do you want from me? Stay away. Why are you here? It's not our time. They would holler at Jesus every time. They're real. And they're working. And yet, the Bible says that they do not have eternal life in heaven. They have eternal damnation in hell. There are many good moral people today who give to charity and they're involved in the PTA and they're good upstanding citizens, but that bears not one iota of the fact of them being genuinely birthed or born again into the family of God. The point is not that the presence of fruit proves the presence of faith, but the absence of fruit sometimes proves the absence of faith. Why? Because there is no root. Look, demons have a root, but it's not pointed toward heaven. It's connected to hell. And and understand that that is their motivation. They have a real, genuine faith. But it's not in Jesus. Two men were in a boat roaring down a uh, roaring down a river, and the oarsman was a Christian, and he began to demonstrate the connection between faith and deeds. He took one oar and called it deeds, and took the other oar and called it faith. He took the oar of faith and began to row, but found that only when he Rowed with faith, he went around in circles. So he decided, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take the oar, and I'm going to work it to death on deeds, and the same thing happened. He just turned around in a circle. Then all of a sudden, he took two, both oars, faith and deeds, and he put them together, and he began to oar, and all of a sudden, he began to make progress and go forward. The whole point of this distinction is not just to have verbal faith, but visible faith. Faith. Faith that is alive or it is dead, one or the other, in you and I. James informs us that demons believe and they'll tell you they have the existence of his deity and yet they have never been saved. Thirdly and lastly is the dynamic faith. In verses 20 to 26, we're introduced with two people, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham being a patriarch, Rahab being a prostitute. Abraham being a Jew, Rahab being a Gentile. Abraham being a man, Rahab being a woman. And yet both of them exemplified true saving faith by what they did in obeying God. I guess the toughest thing I believe there would have ever had to be, remember as long as Abraham had prayed for his son and, uh, and the goof up and the mess up he did by not listening to God and not obeying God and letting, listen to his wife Sarah and go out and, and get another uh, woman pregnant and end up with another son, it wasn't the son of promise. And now God was calling on Abraham in the Old Testament to sacrifice his son to God. We all know the story, and we know that Abraham, when he raised the knife, God said, Stop! Don't you kill him. I've provided you a sacrifice. 
in the bush. But he was willing to obey God. He, he showed that his faith was tapped to a root that produced fruit. Fruit of what? Fruit of obedience. Fruit of obeying God. You know, God has a, a cool way of showing examples, but and we kind of look at a patriarch and say, well, you know, Abraham, he was our, he's our idol. But what about a prostitute? <laughs> Is that your idol? I mean, after all, do you want your sons or your daughters to grow up? And have you told them you want them to be like a prostitute? I don't think so. I think it's kind of cool how the Lord Jesus used this illustration. Because he wanted us to know. Those of us that have had moral failures, those that have messed up, that God forgives and that God saves those on the other side of the track. You know, sometimes we look down our nose to people who have had pretty difficult past, but the truth of it is God don't. God saved Rahab just like he did Abraham. And, Rahab, and in Rahab's lineage, it'd be interesting for you to see just the godly people who came through the lineage of that prostitute. Well, a Sunday school teacher asked the children just before she dismissed them to go to church, why is it necessary to be quiet in church? Annie replied, because people are sleeping. The fact of it is, even during this sermon, some of you went to sleep. Some of you may have gone to sleep spiritually. And I want you to hear this. And I don't want you mad at this preacher that I didn't tell you that the Bible said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants you. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we don't always make the right decision. But he also knows that he made a way, even as he made the way for Rahab the prostitute. He made a way so that we could be with him forever. That you and I, as sorry as we are, could receive the Son of God and receive the grace of God and by faith, be saved eternally that when you and I die, we know we have a promise. I have a date with Jesus. I don't, I'm glad I don't know what that date is. But I'm going to tell you something. Every one of us have a day of reckoning. We have a day to stand before the Savior. But listen to me. Beware that you don't fall asleep because God has called us to serve, my sir. God has called us to, to ma'am, to serve him, to work. My question is, are you working enough to justify the fact that Jesus is on the inside? What are you doing? You know, we're in, what, the third su Sunday in this new year? 
Some of you have done absolutely no different than you did for the last 52 Sundays of the last year. What is it that you're allowing your life to be used by Jesus to serve him? Because why? He's on the inside. And he's giving you the nature of the power of himself to be used as a witness here on this earth. Father.